Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Thursday, May 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Very soon you could be seeing ads on your favorite streaming platform. Netflix has long been a holdout when it came to placing ads during their content, but a huge loss of subscribers has them scrambling for how to make up the lost revenue. To that end, a cheaper pricing tier with ads could be coming by the end of the year. Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode, joins us for why it makes sense and if viewers will stick around for it. Next, the withholding of recess has long been a punishment tactic for teachers when kids misbehave or miss assignments. Now, there's growing momentum to pass laws that protect recess time and prohibit schools from taking it away to punish kids. Research has shown that unstructured free time is important for child development as it fosters good social, communication, and coping skills. Jackie Mader, early education reporter at the Heckinger Report, joins us for the fight for recess. Finally, we all know that coworker who might not be the brightest or hardest worker, but still gets promoted anyway. Whether it's schmoozing, brown nosing, or riding coattails, some have mastered the art of failing up. As more are going back to the office after too many pandemic Zoom meetings, it's becoming more evident again. Callum Borchers, on-the-clock columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how some are turning failure into success. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant um, get what they want makes a lot of sense. Joining us now is Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's talk about what nobody really wants to come their way. Ads on your streaming service. A lot of the conversation is surrounding what's going on with Netflix. They had some really bad time where they lost a ton of subscribers and they're kind of scrambling to figure out what's next. One of the things a lot of people are pointing to ads coming to the platform now. And there's already other streaming platforms that are doing ads. But Netflix was always one of those holdouts that said they weren't going to do it. Now they're saying maybe before the end of the year, they could have a tiered pricing plan that it does include ads. So Peter, tell us a little bit more about it. For about a decade, uh, Netflix has been streaming without ads. Periodically, people would say, when are you going to add ads? And Reed Hastings, the CEO, would say, nope, nope, nope. And they kept saying, no, it's an easy way to add revenue. Why don't you do it? No, no, no. Netflix is a better service because it doesn't have ads. This quarter, like you mentioned, Netflix lost subscribers. It's going to lose 2 million more subscribers the next quarter. So instead of just slowing growth, which is sort of anticipated, it's now going backwards. And that's absolutely connected to their decision to say, you know what? We are going to offer a cheaper version of Netflix with ads. 
and it's quite it's quite a startling turnaround for them. They've made no ads part of their identity, and now they're changing it. There's a huge amount of money in TV advertising, billions of dollars, and it keeps growing every year. You know, and and the cost of making these programs and running these platforms has also ballooned, right? Everybody's doing their own programming, their their originals, and all that, and that's expensive, and they're just not making it on the subscribers alone. For a long time, Wall Street was happy if Netflix kept growing, and it didn't really care if Netflix was profitable. In fact, for a while, Netflix was losing billions of dollars a year, and Wall Street said, that's all right, you just keep growing. And then everyone else in the TV industry got the same idea. It said, all right, we're going to stop trying to make money as well. We just want to grow our, our streaming subscriber platform. That's the plan. And then in the last year or so, Wall Street said, you know what, actually, I think we'd like you to make some money, too. You can't just grow subscribers. You need to actually grow profits. So not just Netflix, but everyone else now has to figure out how to make more money from streaming. Um, We know that consumers want to stream stuff. uh, And now it's up to the industry to figure out how to give the consumers what they want while making a reasonable amount of money. And one of the things you brought up in, in your article about this is the implementation has got to be super important. You know, for me as a streamer, I stream a lot of t- uh, a lot of stuff. You know, if it's a pre-roll or a post-roll, I kind of don't care at that point. But if you're starting to cut in the middle of the content, right in the middle of a show, that's where things start getting iffy. And, and Reed Hastings even said for himself, you know, he wants to outsource a lot of that stuff. Let another company do it. And that's where it seems like it's going to get really messy. It's hard to imagine that Reed Hastings would be comfortable if Netflix had a similar experience that some of the other streaming services have. And you can check out things like Pluto or Tubi or even Peacock, where it looks like there's not even a human involved and and some computer has just randomly dropped in ads. You would think Netflix would go out of its way to avoid that experience. And they might, but that will involve money and time and expense. And Netflix is trying to tell Wall Street, we want to add ads. That is, we want to bring in more revenue, but we don't want to spend a lot of money to do it. So something is going to have to give there. And again, a reminder here, if you like Netflix without ads, if you like HBO and HBO Max without ads, if you like Disney Plus without ads, you can continue to get that even as these guys introduce advertising-based tiers. Um, the idea is to bring in consumers who aren't streaming, who aren't streaming that service, and say, look, it's now a lot cheaper with ads. And by the way, Hulu, who's been doing this for a long time, says it makes more money from its advertising-based tier than if it's more expensive tier without ads. So there's a way where this works for everyone. If you want to pay a premium and not have ads, you can do that. If you want a cheaper version with ads, you can put up with that. To your last point about pricing, you know, we're going through this period of high inflation right now. People are price sensitive with all this stuff and you get every streaming platform. Now it's the same as a cable bill. You know, for HBO with ads, it's $9.99. Without ads, it's $14.99. Paramount Plus, $5 with ads, $9 without ads. You know, so where will the eventual landing position be for Netflix is also an important thing. And they've already said, look, we, we know that, that if we introduce a, a cheaper tier, some of our paid subscribers who are paying for some of our subscribers who are getting the, the service without ads might migrate down. So we have to negotiate that, too. We have to figure out how to make it attractive enough to bring in new subscribers without getting some of our current subscribers to sort of trade down and pay us less money. Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My child may not be able to track. I didn't get my parents to sign this form, and now I'm sitting out at recess. So it's just not the most appropriate punishment is what child development experts are now saying, even though it is common and it has been common for a long time. Joining us now is Jackie Mater, early education reporter at the Heckinger Report. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about recess for kids. Right now, uh, you know, in a lot of schools uh, across the country, really, withholding recess or or making uh, students do other things during their recess time is being used as a punishment tool. You know, if kids are misbehaving, they're missing school or something like that, well, the consequence is you don't get to go to recess, you don't get to play, or you got to walk laps, it seems like uh, a lot of places are doing this. But there's a a movement in a a, a number of states to try to pass laws to protect recess. You know, a lot of researchers say that this is a, a very uh, a critical element for kids for good development and whatnot. So the conversation all over the place is, should recess be a right or a privilege when it comes to these students? So Jackie, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah. Um, so this is a really common punishment. It's been happening for a long time in schools. When I was interviewing experts, a lot of them said, oh, I remember this happening when I was a kid. Yeah, same um, So yeah, we all we all have those stories. We remember it happening. But there's been a growing understanding of both the importance of recess and the benefits that come with that, an understanding of the importance of free play, especially for really young children and at a time when, you know, they're sitting in schools learning more academics than ever before. And so this time is really important. And then at the same time, pediatricians and child development experts, they're starting to say, this isn't the most appropriate punishment. There there are other punishments that may be more effective, but going a route that can be more punitive or even stigmatize a child and doesn't really follow a natural consequence, right? Like a child may not be able to track, I didn't get my parents to sign this form and now I'm sitting out at recess. So it's just not the most appropriate punishment is what child development experts are now saying, even though it is common and it has been common for a long time. 
on the teacher side of things, I mean, how do they feel? What do they do? What are some recommendations for other things when, you know, they're at their limits a lot of times, too? They don't know how to discipline the kids. It's true. I mean, teachers need ways to manage their classrooms. They need to be able to enforce the rules. Kids need to learn. You know, you do have to follow rules in school. We're trying to keep everyone safe and we're trying to learn. Part of the problem that, you know, teachers talk to me about and schools and administrators talk about is there often aren't enough supports for teachers. So if a teacher has a really challenging behavior from a child in their classroom, you know, a lot of schools don't have social workers or counselors to come in and say, hey, we're going to get to the root cause of this issue. You know, for some kids, I talk to plenty of families whose kids have disabilities, so they need more support and maybe, you know, punishing a kid because of a behavior that may be due to their disability isn't the right way to go, these parents say. Instead, they need more support, maybe from the special education team. But we know teachers are lacking. So there's definitely, it's a hard time for teachers. And I know a lot of teachers are leaving the field. And many say, I mean, surveys have come out to say classroom management is one of the main reasons why teachers leave. So, you know, two things can be true. Teachers need more support. Kids need more support. And we can, you know, come up with some more effective and what experts say are developmentally appropriate punishments. And to your question, some of those punishments may be, I mean, I talked to a pediatrician who said, in general, stigmatizing adults is inappropriate. So we don't want to do that for kids, especially really young kids. Something like explaining why we have these rules so kids understand why it's important. Offering positive reinforcement. So maybe even offering an extra recess, right? And kids can work toward earning that. So they're not losing the one recess they have. They're working toward a reward. And I talked to a classroom management expert at a teacher training program who said, you know, they really teach their teachers to work on this kind of positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement system with their students. So there are alternatives. The problem is, do teachers have the time, you know, even the knowledge, they may not know some of these routes and the support to roll out different methods in their classroom. So the movement now, right, there's lawmakers in a number of states and, you know, obviously a lot of individual school districts, too, that are looking to either pass laws or policies that say, well, no, we have to have this recess time for kids. You know, you can't use that taking it away as a punishment. Yeah, that's correct. So right now there are about 12 states that limit this in some way. Most of them say you can't use physical activity as a punishment or withholding physical activity as a punishment. So that includes recess. Very few outright say you cannot take away recess as a punishment. Illinois is one of those states that just passed this in 2021. And now four other states are considering this, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. They all have bills moving through the legislatures right now that would specifically ban withholding recess. So there is kind of this growing understanding of, you know, like you mentioned, you know, children are behind in their development. That includes social development. And there's this a lot of, you know, mental health concerns for children. So this growing understanding that, hey, maybe recess is something that needs to be protected to help with all of this. And the best way to do that may be creating this law so it's not an option. I think a lot of people would argue, you know, on the flip side, you also have to support teachers with other options. But it has (laughs) been shown that states that have laws to protect recess time, those schools in those states are more likely to have recess time. So there is some evidence that laws are kind of the way to go if you really want to protect recess. Jackie Mader, early education reporter at the Heckinger Report. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
And he turned out to be right. He kept the account. And so his point is, look, people make mistakes. Everybody does. Nobody is perfect. If you have good interpersonal skills and you can save an account instead of losing it, well, that's a real skill in business. Joining us now is Callum Borshers, on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Callum. Always a pleasure. Well, let's talk about an interesting thing happening in the workplace, and we're seeing it a little bit more now that we're a lot, a lot more people are returning to office. The uh, people that fall up, a lot of the times people get promoted on their merit, you know, good work, all that stuff. But there are this select few of people that just kind of have this mysterious talent for advancement, despite, you know, it just seeming like they're not all there or, you know, they're just not putting in all the work. And, you know, now that we're back in office, uh, you know, we're not doing things over Zoom and there's not this priority on remote efficiency. Uh, We're starting to see some of this happen again, where these people get to fall up. So, Callum, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the return to office is a really key point here, right? Because the people who have this uh, mysterious talent for failing their way up the corporate ladder, this is kind of an age-old gripe among their coworkers who sort of eye them with jealousy, like, how does that person (laughs) get to keep getting new jobs and promotions and raises? But we're, we're noticing it again because, of course, folks like this tend to really thrive in in-person environments, right? They're the backslappers, the big smilers, the firm handshakers, right? They love being in the building when they can schmooze with the boss. And they didn't necessarily thrive in the in the remote environment at the height of the pandemic. And so uh, other folks who were maybe a little bit more reserved, who were happy to put their heads down and be really productive working from home, uh, they may be shaking their fists anew as they go back to their desks and, and notice, uh, you know, so-and-so who uh, is getting attention now <laughs> with the big grin. And so, how did they do this? One of the key things seemed to be framing the mistakes they're making and and making them moments of growth. Uh, you know, at least showing, hey, maybe I learned from this. Maybe you remind the bo- you remind them of the boss. You know, the boss is like, ah, oh, you remind me of me when I was young and hungry. Uh, let's throw this mistake aside. Let's keep going. That seems to be one of the key things in all this. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different ways that people pull this off, right? There isn't a singular formula. You hit a big one. One is sort of reframing your mistakes. You know, for example, I, I talked with a guy named Anthony Pratt, who is a, a landscape architect and transportation designer at a big firm in Denver. And he's one of the few people who will actually raise his hand and say, yeah, I'm somebody who fails up in my career from time to time. And he says, but I do it by growing and learning from mistakes. He, he told me a story about uh, a recent project that he managed that went over budget. Okay, clients not happy. His boss isn't happy. You'd think, oh boy, he's going to be in hot water. But he says he saved the situation by being really upfront with the client, explaining what it happened. And when his boss said, hey, how are we going to make up this lost revenue? His answer was, well, we're going to make it up on the next project. We're going to keep getting work with this client because we were honest with them. And he turned out to be right. He kept the account. And so his point is, look, people make mistakes. Everybody does. Nobody is perfect. If you have good interpersonal skills and you can save an account instead of losing it, well, that's a real skill in business. So colleagues may have seen him bust the budget. Maybe what they didn't see was the savvy client relations. And so that's somebody who says, look, I've got this skill that's not always visible to other people, but it is worth something. And then you mentioned also, too, that in some certain types of failure are also badges of honor, especially when it comes to Silicon Valley. You might have a failed startup here. Uh, you might have got a lot of money and going up, but you know the tenacity that you keep working with. Uh, next project, let's do another project, another startup, and uh, just turning those failures into upward mobility. 
Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's the ultimate proof of your genius, how, just how brilliant you are, right? If you're a, some like startup entrepreneur who can burn through millions of dollars of venture capital and yet convince investors to give you a second or even third chance on a new company, right? So sometimes you'll hear ultimately successful, usually tech CEOs, talk about their early career failures. As you said, it's kind of a badge of honor. It's hard for other people to pull this off uh, necessarily, but there are some takeaways that we can learn from folks like that who have failed their way up into better positions. I had an interesting conversation with a, a man named Ken Cow, who's a software engineer, and he told me he's sort of naturally reserved, but he's noticed that sometimes it's the people who can talk a big game and knock a few back with senior leaders who, who advance in the company. And so he told me, you know, I've sort of adopted a more assertive style in the workplace then comes naturally to me. So so you can sort of shake your fist at the at the people who fail up a little bit, or maybe you can take a page out of their playbook sometimes. There are some times when people do rise to the occasion though, right? So they might have fallen up uh, uh, unexpectedly, right? But then they do say, okay, I'm going to meet the moment. We're going to get it done. And then they do. And uh, you mentioned uh, in the sports world, this tends to happen a bit. Right. And so I like sports because success and failure are pretty measurable on the ledger, right? You either win or you lose. So in the kind of example you you just gave, Cliff Kingsbury comes to mind, right? So just you go back just a few years, a lot of sports fans and pundits were, were scratching their heads like, how does this guy who gets fired as the head coach at Texas Tech after six seasons with a losing record, he was 35 and 40 as a college coach, you would normally think, oh, somebody like that is going to have to take a lower ranking job. He'll go be a coordinator someplace else. Well, no, instead he vaults a couple of months later to head coach of the NFL's Arizona Cardinals. Head scratching at the time, but guess what? He's actually validated that decision because in three seasons, he's taken the Cardinals from last place to the playoffs last season, and he just signed a contract extension. So that's a case of somebody who, as you said, seemingly didn't deserve the position at the outset, but has risen to the occasion and proven some doubters wrong. Callum Borschers, on the clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be with you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.